Hello, my name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions. And I'm Proven Paradox, a guy with a lot of questions. And you're listening to Bright on Buddhism, a podcast where we discuss East Asian Buddhism, answering listener-submitted questions from listeners just like you, and introducing concepts of Buddhism that you may or may not be familiar with in a casual, conversational setting. Enjoy. Hermit, how many different practices have you seen for attaining awakening? A great many practices. I have seen asceticism, recitation of the sutras, meditation, merit transfer, all of the usual ones. I've also seen a few less mainstream practices. I've seen some monks slapping their students with a stick, seen some odd semi-scripted dialogues, and I've seen the use of nonsense phrases. I've seen many of these uncommon practices as well, and they do seem curious. These practices in themselves seem to reject conventional means of achieving enlightenment. They seem highly critical of intellect and discriminatory knowledge, and regard it as pretty much useless as a means of understanding the world. Makes one wonder how they interpret the sutras. Do they read them as narrative stories, doctrinal instructions, or something entirely different? I think that they must read them looking for those moments in the sutras where the Buddha looks for alternative means of bringing beings to enlightenment. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Bright on Buddhism. This week we will be discussing koans. What are koans? What is the doctrine behind them? How are they used? We hope you enjoy. So, what are koans? Koans are phrases and questions that are a part of Zen or Chan Buddhist practice. This practice has become quite popular and well-known in the West, but the doctrine behind them, the ritual involved, and their specific use and meaning is often lost in the Western imagination so they merit some detailed discussion here. The word koan originated in China in the 9th century. The word is pronounced gongan in Chinese, and it contains two characters. The first one, ko, as it's read in Japanese, refers to something public or common or official. And the second character, an, refers to a desk, a plan, or a legal case. Together, they come to mean a case for public consideration, or an issue for public consideration. However, the etymology alone does not give us enough to understand what koans actually are, so we must consider a little bit of the history of the practice. The practice of koan grew very popular among Chan Buddhist practitioners during the Tang Dynasty. As we've discussed before, Chan is the Chinese predecessor to Japanese Zen. Early on in the Tang Dynasty, the practice began as Chan masters collecting and commenting on each other's sayings and using those collections and commentaries as a teaching tool in a way of establishing that one had attained awakening. If they had read the collected sayings and commented on them in a sufficiently enlightened way, they were thought of to have advanced along the path of enlightenment to some degree. To that end, the sayings and their comments became increasingly esoteric or difficult for the common person to understand, and so later the practice developed into a literary practice, where Chan masters would have dialogues with each other which were highly elusive to Chinese poetry and fiction. The Chinese language has more characters than possible sounds. There are 50,000 Chinese characters, each with a specific meaning and use, but there are only 410 sounds in modern spoken Chinese. That means that there are many homophones, or words that have the same sound but a different meaning. Literary koan practice made extensive use of homophones to make puns or to demonstrate a very strong command of language, and that's part of the reason why it became so esoteric and difficult to understand. 
It wasn't until about the 11th or 12th century that koans became a meditation tool. Uh, Chan master Dahui Zonggao, who lived during the Song dynasty, made it a common practice to observe the phrase or to meditate on a particular unusual phrase that was part of these commentaries or these collected sayings until the person observing has reached the point of semantic satiation. And that phrase no longer has any dualistic or discriminatory meaning. Semantic satiation is that part of our speech where if we repeat something over and over and over again, it stops to have all meaning and association with what the word is. And it just really feels like a foreign noise or a foreign movement of the mouth muscles rather than actual language. And the same can be done meditatively to the point where you can see phrases in your mind's eye, not as phrases, but as simply lines or as feelings or as movement rather than as anything that communicates a dictionary meaning of a word. The practice of koan expanded greatly in Japan among the Rinzai and Soto Zen schools. There became a prescribed or scripted type of interaction as part of the meditation practice where a master would give a disciple a koan, give them time to meditate on it, and then expect the student to return and give the master a capping phrase that demonstrated their awakening. These capping phrases were often snippets of classical Chinese or Japanese poetry, borrowing from the literary aspects of the practice. Soto Zen later dropped the use of koans because they came to emphasize the mind-to-mind transmission of the teaching, and they didn't do it nearly as much anymore after the 18th century. But otherwise, koans and capping phrases and these semi-scripted dialogues have remained popular among many different branches of Zen Buddhism. What is the doctrine behind koans? As we've mentioned before, Zen Buddhism is known for emphasizing mind-to-mind transmission of the teaching of the Buddha, emphasizing emptiness, non-duality, and skillful means, and koans collectively represent all of those. Zen and Chan are often highly critical of language because in the way that we commonly understand it, it's inherently dualistic, and it's also, like all things, empty of inherent existence or permanence or any kind of real relationship to the meaning that is associated with it. But they recognize that it can be used skillfully, as we talked about with the literary koan practice, for example. It can be used skillfully to delight or to lead someone to higher understanding, even if it can't communicate that higher understanding directly. And so using it skillfully can be delightful, can cause higher understanding, and can lead somebody to enlightenment, even if the language itself is not capable of fully directly giving somebody the enlightenment or understanding it's seeking to lead them to. We've talked about this before in the context of the flavor of chocolate. If you've never had chocolate before, I can't tell you what it tastes like and have you completely understand what it tastes like. The only way to know the taste of chocolate is to taste chocolate. So these koans developed from this perspective of language, this perspective that's critical of dualistic language, but understands its use and necessity in terms of leading people to understanding. In that regard, they represent an unconventional and skillful use of language as a means of meditation and reaching enlightenment. Here would be a good place to present some of the famous ones. Most koans that we are aware of in English come from four different collections. These are the Blue Cliff Record, the Book of Equanimity, 
the Gateless Gate, and the Treasury of the True Dharma Eye. These are all from the 12th or 13th century, coming from China and Japan, and we will read and discuss koans from each of these in a lot more detail in future episodes. The most famous koan, I think, is What is the Sound of One Hand Clapping? This was written by Hakuin Eikaku, a 16th century Japanese Zen Buddhist. Another is A monk asked Zhao Zhou, Does a dog have Buddha nature or not? Zhao Zhou said, Wu. This one is very interesting because Wu, or Mu as it's written in Japanese, is the character that represents negation. It's like the prefix non or un or the suffix less in English. It's also frequently used to represent the concept of emptiness as it's expressed in non-self and in impermanence, which are read as muga and mujo, respectively, in Japanese. Here, it actually also sounds like a dog barking. This one appears in The Gateless Gate. Next is one that reads, Hui Nung asked Hui Ming, Without thinking of good or evil, show me your original face before your mother and father were born. This one appears in the gateless gate as well. So in those examples, we had the phrase itself, but what are some examples of capping phrases or the answers that are expected of a given student here? So a monk will often give a disciple these koans, one of these koans at a time, and the disciple typically has a notebook that they keep hidden away somewhere where they've recorded all these different capping phrases that they're aware of. And what they are to do is to meditate on the koan and try and connect it somehow with one of these capping phrases that they've recorded. These capping phrases have been organized by Victor Sogen Hori, whose book is going to be cited in the show notes today. And they're sorted by the number of characters in them. So they range all the way from one character up to... 21 characters from just four characters. And so these are often, like I said, snippets from classical Chinese and classical Japanese poetry. One of them reads, how far are they apart? Another one reads, in the third month when the village is shrouded in mist, ah, the entire household is in spring. Another one reads, the priest has just such a Zen blade. These are often very, very hard to understand by themselves because they are part of a story, part of a narrative, or part of poetry. And so it's really often difficult to find a connection. If you slap the water, you hurt the heads of the fish. Silence is truly effective. So these are very, very esoteric, very confusing, and often don't make sense. But if you meditate on these enough, you've cultivated what's called the great doubt the great doubt in the reality around you, such that you can make these sort of what would commonly seem nonsensical connections between your given koan and your capping phrase. So a given student who's participating in a koan is not going to know which phrase their master is expecting, but will have to meditate on it in order to get to that phrase? Sometimes they will give a phrase and give their justification for why that's connected, or sometimes they will just simply give the phrase by itself. So the master doesn't ask a koan and have a list of right answers in his mind. 
that the student has to get to on their own, but he knows when there's wrong answers. So it's, it's kind of a very intuitive arbitration between the master and the disciple. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. So let's get back to the script. So how are koans used? Though koans are formulated as unanswerable questions or as nonsense phrases or as riddles or puzzles, they are not meant to be understood that way. We cannot use our calculating knowledge or our discriminatory intellect to try and figure them out. There are many different levels and types of koans, but they all share that characteristic. In most koan practices, first, one of the three koans that we just mentioned will be given to a student. And instructions will be given for the student to meditate on a specific word or part of the koan and make that inquiry or make that phrase their entire being. Achieve non-duality. Achieve a breakdown in the distinction between oneself and the koan that's being given. In fact, the gateless gate has instructions about the koan that we provided about the dog and Buddha nature. It says, concentrate yourself on this wu. Make your whole body one great inquiry. Day and night work intently at it. Do not attempt nihilistic or dualistic interpretations. This is meant to make the practitioner break down their concept of subject and object, to attain non-duality between themselves and the phrase, and to gain insight into their own Buddha nature. The practitioner becomes the koan, and they attain a breakthrough realization about it that happens at the point of semantic satiation, at the point of exhaustion, or at the point of giving up. Then to check that the proper realization has been attained, as we mentioned before, the master will engage the student in this semi-scripted dialogue. The master will ask a checking question, or a sasho, to make sure that proper realization was had and that the student has truly understood their own Buddha nature. The student then responds with a capping phrase, or a jakugo. Through this repeated practice, the students are learning a ritualized performance. The sasho and the jakugo are standardized questions and answers. Like I said, the master doesn't have an idea of what the right answer is when he gives the student the koan, because right and wrong is a duality, and any answer that the student gives will give some information as to the workings of the student's mind. And the master is supposed to be able to understand from that answer how far along that student is in terms of realizing their own Buddha nature, in terms of understanding the koan, etc. So to that end, the process of question and answer is actually a test of the student's ability to keep up with the master's mental process and its teaching as it's reflected through the sasho and confirmed by the jakugo. If a student fails this, they return to meditation and try again and again, each time with different questions and different answers. So the frustration aspect is fully intentional and part of the experience. It's, this is there to knock people out of their normal way of thinking. And so frustration is just a part of it, it looks like. Absolutely. This is very common with different Zen practices. If there's a person out there who wants to join a Zen monastery in Japan, what you have to do is you have to go and sit outside the door for three days with no food or water and without getting up and without saying anything and without using the bathroom or anything like that. And every day, a master will come out of the front door 
and say to you, leave, get out. You're not good enough. Go away. We don't want you. We don't have enough room. We don't have any beds for you. We don't have any food here for you. Get out of here. And sometimes they'll come out with their slapping sticks. We've talked about the slapping sticks that they use during meditation and they'll beat up a person. And if a person persists through all of that for three days, then they're allowed to come in. And this koan practice is very similar to that in that what they're trying to do is they're trying to get you to beat your head against a wall so much, so, so, so much that you're propelled off the edge into enlightenment simply by your frustration and your exhaustion and your giving up. Whenever you have reached the point of your absolute wit's end, that's where they want you to be. Wit, intellect has no place in what we're doing here. And so in that regard, they try and get you beyond that point. And so that means that no one has ever gotten it on their first try. Whenever you're given the Buddha nature koan, or you're given the one hand clapping koan, whatever answer you give in the first session, they're not going to accept it. That's not going to be the right answer. They're going to make you go back a lot. They're going to make you go back many times. And when you have gone back enough times and you show that you're progressing through these stages of frustration and literally beating your head against the wall, then finally they'll know whether you've had that aha moment. In Japanese, that aha moment is known as satori. It's where you just completely have broken down all the walls around you and you can actually finally see for the first time. After you've done all this work, toiling away at nonsense, you can finally make some sense of stuff. And it's a very interesting and very fascinating experience and place to be. It's often actually reflected in martial arts, in meditation, in lots of different aspects of Zen-influenced culture in East Asia. Yeah, so they give you a wall to knock down, and the only tool you have is your head. Yes. Gotcha. Okay, cool. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode on koans. Join us next week, where we'll be doing a deep dive on the concept of emptiness. What is the meaning of emptiness in Buddhism? What are the different definitions of this word? How does the definition change over time? We hope to see you there. Thank you very much for listening. See you next time. Thank you for listening. My name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions and the voice of Hearer. And I'm Docs, editor, question asker, and voice of Hermit. And this has been Bright on Buddhism. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, or if you have a question you'd like us to discuss, we'd love to hear from you. Please consider leaving a comment or review, subscribing, or joining us on social media. Email us at bright.on.buddhism at gmail.com. Tweet us at brightbuddhism. And join us on our Discord server, The Hidden Sangha. Link in description. As always, citations and resources for this episode can be found in the show notes. Thank you. See you next time. Thank you very much.